0: We're returning tonight to our study that uh, we had paused, did a couple of open studies recently. Uh, we're getting back to our ongoing study in Christ in the Old Testament. And in that, we've broken that big study down into three sections. We're on the third section now. We covered Christ in the Old Testament prophecies, we covered all of the personal appearances of Christ in the Old Testament known theologically as Christophanies or uh, Theophanies. And now we're on to the third and final section, which is a particularly meaty section because uh, one, it's just super interesting. And two, it uh, takes a little bit uh, of discernment, a little bit of careful consideration to be accurate in this section. There's been a lot of, a lot of, uh, going out of biblical boundaries in terms of right principles of interpretation in this section throughout uh, the history of christianity and that's the study of christ in what are called types and shadows Uh, a type of christ we're defining as a prophetic symbol of one particular generally speaking one particular aspect of either the person or work of christ something foreshadowing the, the arrival, the personage, and the work of Christ uh, found in various aspects of the Old Testament story. So in that, uh, we're, we're breaking that now, the study of types, into seven smaller segments. We've covered two of those. We've looked at uh, Christ in Old Testament things, And uh, our most recent study was a four-part Christ in the Old Testament structures. So what we're doing tonight is we're starting the third of these seven segments of Christ in Old Testament types. And this is Christ in Old Testament events. Uh, Specific things that happened that were considered are considered to be the great events of the Old Testament, the significant events of the Old Testament. Not that there's anything insignificant in the Old Testament, but you understand how it is. Some events are just much more important than others, and so we're going to be focused on those. And in terms of the study of Christ in the Old Testament events, generally speaking, these are focused not on the person of Christ as much as they are the work of Christ, what it is that Christ would accomplish in his work. And I'm going to look at two categories of Old Testament events as Christ is pictured in them. And these are Really, uh, a summary in two terms, two theological terms of uh, all of God's work in the Old Testament and and we're going to be looking at the specific uh, spotlight on Christ in his role. and that is uh, the Lord's work in creation and the Lord's work in redemption and how both of those great works, and because really you could sum up the whole Old Testament as it's a story of creation and it's a story of redemption. Um, And of course, that carries on into the New Covenant, New Testament as well. So with that, um, we won't have time to get to the redemption portions tonight. Um, I'm going to start the work of Christ in the events of creation, and we'll just see how far we get with that tonight. We'll go as far as we can, and uh, if we don't quite finish it, I'll I'll make a second part out of that. Uh, But starting with um, Genesis chapter 1, what we're going to look at is first what I'm calling creation week types, meaning uh, just in Genesis 1, and we'll look at one portion at the very beginning of chapter 2 as well, uh, which uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through to, if you want to just turn the page through to chapter 2, verse 3 is the summary account that the Lord has revealed to us in Scripture Of the original week of creation the seven days of creation and in those days of creation i i have seen or i do see numerous types of the work of christ that are portrayed for us so we're going to uh, tackle let's see a total one two three four five six seven of these which um, doesn't exactly fit the seven days uh, and i'll explain why but uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll look at these seven things where I see Christ displayed in these events, this, this first great event of what we call history in this first week. So let's read um, chapter one, verses one through three for our first one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, there's, just within these three verses, there's layers of all kinds of information that are important for us to understand as believers. But I'm just going to be focusing on Christ's presence in the event in terms of what is he doing, what is the work of Christ portrayed here, and how does it point forward to an even greater work of Christ in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, because all of the types, every one of them in all of the seven categories we're overall studying, are using some historic reference point from something that actually occurred in the Old Testament time period, and then Symbolically pointing forward to an even greater expression of that same concept that's found in Christ as he arrives, as his person is revealed, and as his work is revealed in the new covenant. So what are we looking for here in these first three verses? What part does Christ play in this event? I see it in particular in verse 3. This is what is known as the creative fiat which is the very first word that God ever spoke that brought about the event of creation or began what we know as creation. We've talked about this before. It's uh, several words in the text here, but it really, it really focuses on, you could, you could describe this as a single word in the original text, but it says, and God said, let there be light. Uh, it's not so much, and I think we all get this, I think I've emphasized this several times in different studies. Whenever you see a passage where it's referring to the work of God, and here God himself is describing his own work in verse three, when he says, let there be, it's not so much that he's standing back and saying, I will allow there to be formed light, and that somehow the forming of light or the the bringing into existence of the light that is being described here is apart from his immediate and direct work, power, or involvement. It's not so much let there be light, it's more like this, light be, and you could even translate it and you wouldn't be mangling the text at all with just a single word as long as you could maybe punctuate it with like an exclamation point. Uh, Light is the word that God communicated that brought light into existence now uh, keep your place and we're going to be jumping back and forth to genesis 1 throughout our study so keep your place here and let's jump into the new testament and see a couple of connected scriptures these are not connections that i've drawn these are just connections that i'm following that the new testament writers have drawn the first one the big one is in second corinthians This is, of course, from Paul's teaching. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll read verses 4 through 6. I'll read verse 3 just to get a little bit of the context. And even if our gospel, our saving message... Is veiled, and what he means by veiled is hidden to public understanding, to to the world's perspective. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, God little G, it's a satanic reference. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds. Of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? Not just hearing and understanding and comprehending the gospel, but keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, and here now Paul is going to quote and reference and apply Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 to the work of Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's describing the reality, the practical reality of the experience of what we call salvation. And he's describing it using Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 imagery. And he's intentionally connecting the original word of creation, the creative fiat that God spoke when he said, light be And light sprang into existence and when light sprang into existence, here Paul adds the phrase, let light shine out of darkness, just to give us the full comprehension of the dramatic contrast that happened in that original moment of creation against a backdrop of darkness, which signifies, in that case, emptiness. God then filled or pierced that darkness with his creative word for light to be, light came into existence and the light shone in the midst of the darkness, bringing all attention to bear on that light in the midst of the darkness. Now, Paul's whole point is, that's actually the story of our salvation. You know, the, the darkness signifying what in terms of the story of our salvation? Sin. No, not sin. Our hearts. Right. Now, of course, our hearts are fill, We're filled with sin, so sin has a part to play in it. But the idea is our hearts were darkened hearts prior to the introduction of the saving light of the gospel. But in this particular case, Paul narrows our focus not just to a general concept about the light of the gospel, but he narrows our focus to the origin point of that saving light that is is in a visual sense describing the gospel. What's the origin point here? He says, again, look at, back up at verse 4. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then again down in verse 6. Let light shine out of darkness. This is what God originally said. Has now shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His point is that just like light shone out of, in the into the midst of the darkness or out of the darkness in the original work of creation, now in the new covenant, God is doing a new work of new creation. And the focal point of that work is not just some isolated light that is in, in any way able to be mechanically described like you know scientifically described like you know uh, there are scientists to this day their entire job is to study the nature of light itself and there's a big you know there's a big um, debate that's been going on for decades uh, over whether the true properties of light and we're talking about natural physical light like filling this room right now whether light is really a stream of particles, or whether it's a wave, a continuous wave. And, you know, there are some who believe, and they've kind of adopted a middle ground, and they say, well, it, it really is a stream of particles, but it functions or it behaves like a wave. And so, they're not really sure, but they spend their entire life trying to study this. This light is something different than the light that fills this room. How do we know that? It's pretty obvious. Someone could walk into this room and perceive this light and not be saved. The light emanating from these lamps. But this particular light is not emanating from an external source, a mechanical source, a natural source. This light is emanating from the face of Jesus Christ. And so the idea is if you ever truly see Christ for who he is, The light that is emanating from him, which is the light of God's glory, is going to impact that heart in a completely heart transforming way. So that as the person in the hearing of the gospel for the first time sees the face of Jesus Christ accurately in their heart, truly for who he is, then their heart is transformed just like The original creation was transformed when light was introduced into the midst of the darkness. All right, let's look at another passage. And we covered this one's in Hebrews chapter one. We covered this in detail a long time ago when we went through Hebrews together. But we'll revisit it here. I'll start in verse one. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways. This this is all a reference to Old Covenant, Old Testament time period. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, last days here being identified with New Covenant, New Testament era, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, without getting into the details of the Genesis 1-3 text, how did God create the world through his son? He did so when he spoke the word in Genesis 1-3, light be, and his son, who is the word of God, created the world. But then in verse 3, we have some additional Details now uh, linked to our heart's comprehension of Christ in his work of creating all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This word radiance, uh, one Greek scholar. Translated it with this phrase that's kind of awkward sounding, but it it kind of conveys uh, a little bit more detail. It's the outshining or the outraying of whatever light source is being described. So I use the natural greatest light source in our lives, um, naturally speaking, not spiritually speaking. What's the the greatest light source in our common and shared experience? The sun in, in the center of our solar system. So the sun is constantly in in activity that is taking place within the sphere that we identify. There's the sun up there in the sky. We see the sphere, we understand it, we recognize that is its own thing, separate from us. But The only way we can see the sun, the only way we can comprehend the sun, the only way we can understand the sun is by the rays of light that travel from the sun that hit our atmosphere, and we perceive it once those rays hit our atmosphere as light. So the whole point of this is that God himself, God the Father, is the source of light, and the Son of God is the is the outreign, the outshining of that source of light. Meaning, we could not perceive or comprehend or understand who the Father is, except through the glory of the Father that is radiating from Him in the person of His Son. So, if it weren't for the rays traveling from the from the Sun to us we would live in darkness. Even if the sun had its own existence, it's the rays traveling to us that enable us to see it and to comprehend it. In the same way, unless the Son of God had incarnated and unless the Son of God had been revealed in his works that he accomplished for our benefit and for God's glory, we could not understand or comprehend the person of God the Father. All right, so that's our first one. Let's head back now. Uh, This is um, back to Genesis 1. That's the first in our sequence of seven types that we're looking for in this first chapter. or first in the beginning of the second chapter, the original week of creation. The next one is in verse 4, single verse. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Alright, so you have two things taking place in verse 4. One is as God observes the light that he's just commanded to to uh, spring into, into its existence in the midst of the darkness. God looks at it after he's created this light that we can now experience. He looks at it and he evaluates it and he assigns a moral quality to the light. The moral quality is in the word good. He's identified for us that, all right, here's the light. And had he just gone on to create humanity as he does at the end of the week of creation, and had never revealed to humanity his evaluation of the light, there's all different possibilities in terms of how we would comprehend it, how we would evaluate it, what conclusions we would draw from it. So God anticipates the possibility of of our lack of comprehension and even eventually because of sin or deception. And what he does is he attaches a moral quality to the light that has now entered into creation. And he says it's good. The second thing he does after evaluating and naming the light as a morally good thing is that he then acts in such a way as to distinguish the light from the darkness that it was shining in the midst of. He separated the light from the darkness. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I don't want to get—I don't, I don't want to get uh, too much in the weeds here with trying to describe things using scientific terms that are really spiritual in their nature. But um, we've got these light, these lamps that are light sources in this room. Uh, how many of us can identify? The specific beams of light that are coming to us. It's hard to do that, right? Because the light just kind of spreads out into the whole room, and we perceive the room as a lit room. But I'm not, as I'm looking at these lamps right now, I'm not seeing individual beams of light coming at me. I'm just seeing a lit room. What the Lord does here is He distinguishes and categorizes light and darkness by separating the two things. So that it's not like a blended concept of half light and half darkness. These, this situation at this moment in creation is you've got one category that's entirely and only light and one category that's entirely and only darkness. And the two aren't being blended together in that way. Now the question is, why is this happening? What we're looking for are types of the work of Christ. So let's, again, keep our place here and let's head over to some familiar passages. The first one in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter five. Separation, because that's what God did in uh, verse four of Genesis one. Separation is an important biblical concept, super important biblical concept. And it's tied to an essential quality of the nature of God in expression in a moral context. Okay, so the word that we generally use to describe the nature of God in the context of a moral circumstance is what is being declared by the four living creatures around the throne of God day and night. You remember in the throne room of heaven, these four intriguing heavenly beings that are in closest proximity to the throne. They have a job to do and their job is they proclaim a specific and limited message night and day without ever ceasing and they proclaim it over and over again only not because anybody in heaven is forgetting it but only to highlight and emphasize the great significance of what they're proclaiming. What is it those four living creatures proclaim? Holy, holy, holy holy is the Lord God who was and who is and who is to come. The word holy is a word which literally could be translated as separated. So to be holy in a moral or spiritual context, is to be a separated one. So when God calls his people, now in the new covenant, he calls his people saints rather than sinners as they had previously been identified prior to the work, the regenerating and justifying work of salvation. Now he identifies his people not as perfected people yet. We still are capable of sinning. Don't misunderstand. But we are now identified as saints. What that means is literally translated, we are separated ones. So this concept of separation is super important to grasp. And if we're looking for types of the work of Christ, because the question is, how do we get separated from the darkness, from sin, from the old life, from who we used to be? How do we gain that separation that God values in his people because he says be to his people be holy be separated for I am holy it's the essential call of christian discipleship is to walk in a separated way from the defiling elements in the surrounding society and culture around us not being separated from the culture physically like going and living in a cave in the mountains just to get away from all of the bad stuff, but to live in the midst of the bad stuff without having any of it bleed over the line into us. Now, that's not an easy thing. That's the challenge of true Christian discipleship, but we are identified as separated ones. And the concept here is presented to us by the Lord Jesus himself, as he was instructing his disciples in Matthew chapter five, very familiar, familiar imagery. Verse fourteen: You are the light of the world. Now, in other places, uh, for instance, in the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus, in one in one circumstance, stood in the midst of a. A public assembly, and he boldly proclaimed, I am the light of the world, drawing all attention to himself. But here, interestingly, he uses that same descriptor and applies it to his people, applies it to the church, applies it to true believers, to true disciples. And he says, You are the light of the world. Now, that light has to be a light separated from the darkness in the sense of the darkness does not invade and overwhelm the light, but the light is called to influence and affect those that remain in darkness. So a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So a a light separated from the darkness, not being affected by the darkness, but in contrast, the light shining into the dark place and then affecting and impacting those in the darkness. All right, let's look at one other passage. This one, we'll get more into the specifics of the separation. Ephesians chapter 5. And this uh, this is part of that portion of the book of Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians, where Paul has shifted from theological instruction to more practical exhortation and application of those principles. And I'll start reading in verse 6. He's talking about the believer living their life in the midst of a corrupted surrounding society. Spiritually and morally corrupted society. But the believers called to live their life in the midst of that society. So he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the corruptions of this society the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. He's not speaking here in terms of, this is a different question to answer, different context, different emphasis. He's not talking about business partnership here. He's not talking about financial partnership. He's talking about spiritual partnership and moral partnership. So he says, therefore, do not become partners with them. If you're not going to be a partner with someone in something significant that could be a partnership between the two of you without this warning, without this exhortation, without this boundary line, what you're now experiencing is what we call spiritual separation. You've separated yourself from the possibility of partnership with the person on the other side of that relationship do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness. It's it's an interesting emphasis that Paul makes. He doesn't say at one time you were in darkness. He identifies you with the darkness, meaning the darkness that filled your heart signified that you lived with a nature of darkness. But that's In your past, because you have been born of God's spirit, and when you first heard the true gospel of salvation and by the grace of God comprehended it, understood it, and therefore believed it in a saving way, then the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ filled your heart and you were separated from that former condition of darkness. For one time you were darkness, but now... You are, again, not in the light, but you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part, again, separation. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, which are things done in the darkness. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, awake O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right, so the separation that God made between light and darkness, I believe, is a, a clear Symbolic indicator of the saving work of Christ, transforming us from darkness to light, and then separating us in our ongoing behavior from that point forward from the darkness that previously had filled us. Not separating us again, just for emphasis, physically from the world that surrounds us, but separating us spiritually and morally. All right, let's go back, Genesis one again. We'll jump, jump down a few verses. This one is, uh, I think, requires maybe just a touch more uh, biblical discernment to see. It's not as uh, clear cut as a couple of the others that we've already looked at. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Again, attaching a moral moral evaluation to this also imagery of separation between one category of his creation and another category of creation. But now we're looking at two key identifiers in these two verses and the identifiers are land and sea land and sea so the question is and again i'm not inventing this this is i'm following the the teaching lead of of better uh, bible teachers than myself throughout throughout uh, the generations of church history in terms of understanding the symbolic nature of land and sea references later in scripture, beyond chapter one, do they have any symbolic value? Land and sea. The answer is yes, they have great symbolic value. So let's look first at the sea. Um, Let's jump forward to the prophet Daniel. This is a passage we, again, we studied in great detail, but When we were there, I mentioned this, this is uh, maybe 10 years ago. I mentioned this, but I didn't emphasize it like I'm going to emphasize tonight. Daniel chapter 7. Is there any symbolic, typological connection between the concept of the seas having anything to do with the work of Christ? Daniel 7, 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. You understand, right? This is not like a, what's that famous poem? Christmas poem? You know, I, sugar, night. yeah, night for Christmas. Sugar plums and, you know, yeah. He, he didn't just lay down and, you know, I've heard people uh, in the Christian community refer to pizza dreams. Uh, you know, you eat too much, and you know, you have strange dreams. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. We're talking here about uh, what we've identified in a previous study as a spiritual dream. The Lord gave him this dream. The Lord was speaking in the midst of this dream, and the visions he had were 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 uh, revelation to Daniel of things, in his case, that were going to occur in the future. He was going to see future historic events before they even happened. And that has to do with um, a theme that has previously been introduced in Daniel, all the way back in chapter 2, of four great world-dominating empires. Let's read a little further. Verse to Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So you have a sea and you have winds that are stirring it up. So the sea's in turmoil. And in the midst of that tumultuous sea, four, in verse three, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And then from verse four on through uh, the next uh, several verses, uh, four through eight, you have this mysterious description of these four beasts. Not a single one of these beasts is a, a beast you could find on the surface of the earth if you were to search the whole globe and look for every possible animal that's ever existed on the surface of the land. It's none of those. It's kind of a, Each one of these is kind of an amalgam. They're they're unusual, they're different, Uh, they're intended to be understood symbolically. I'll just read the first one just as an example. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Where have you ever seen a lion with eagle's wings? In reality. no. no. The the answer is nowhere except as portrayed as a common symbol. If you've done any archaeological reading, if if you have ever read any ancient history, which I've done more than my share of, uh, a lion with two great wings is the great symbol of the ancient empire of Babylon. So if you look at Babylonian archaeological uh, depictions, you know, like artwork, you will always see this li- this two-winged lion, um, and it's in reference to the might and the ascendant power and ability to travel, you know, throughout the the the, uh, parameters of the great empire that was established and came to be known as the Babylonian empire and for each one of these four you know we've gone through the four in detail Uh, chapter two they were introduced in the form of a symbolic statue here it's four beasts it's the same four empires so the empires just to be clear are Babylon which was then uh, conquered eventually by the Medeo-Persian empire which later became Persia in isolation from the Medes. Then the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, and the fourth and the final one, the fourth beast here, is the Roman Empire leading right up until the time of Christ. And so all of this is depicting this progression of these four great world-dominating empires. we studied all that. That's not my focal point. My focal point for this one is where did these empires come from? In verse 2, excuse me, verse 3, where did the empires come from? The four great beasts came up out of the sea. So the best Bible commentators, there's always one or two that, you know, just won't won't get with the program. But um, the best Bible commentators all identify as the sea here representing fallen, unsaved humanity, And at this particular point in history, we're talking about specifically Gentile humanity because the covenant nation is separated from the nations who are outside of covenant relationship with the Lord. But all four of these empires, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires all rose out of the Gentile nations. They didn't rise out of the covenant nation of Israel. They rose outside of the covenant nation. So the seas represent unsaved, fallen humanity, and here they're in a tumultuous condition and ripe for some world-dominating empire to rise up. What about the other part of this? The land. Back in Genesis 1, the verses were focused on, verses 9 and 10, the Lord, at, on this day of creation, separated the seas from the dry land, and then he distinguished the two and set boundaries around the sea so that the seas would not over, ever overwhelm the dry land, the lone exception of that, of course, being the great flood that he ordained as a judgment uh, a little bit later in history from Genesis 1. What does the land signify? Well, here's a hint: if the if the Gentile nations, the fallen, unsaved, unredeemed Gentile nations, are represented by sea, and they're being separated from land, it's a good bet that we're dealing here with land imagery pointing to the covenant people of God, who were then given by the Lord at a little bit later point under uh, at the time of Abraham, they were given a promised land to inhabit, and to dwell in. And so the land represents God's people. The seas represent those that are outside of relationship and unsaved and disconnected, disassociated from him in terms of covenant relationship. And so going back to Genesis 1, and by the way, I could take us through a bunch of passages that connect the land with the people that inhabit the land in terms of the promised land, the covenant people. But Genesis 1, verse 9 and 10, let's reread it with this concept now. Seas represent the unsaved Gentiles. Land represents the saved uh, covenant people of Israel. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. What was good? God saw that it was good. The The separation again. So it's the same imagery, and how does this separation come about? How do we become covenant people? Wouldn't you want to be a covenant person when all of the blessings and benefits of heaven are targeting the covenant people? Wouldn't you want to be among that number? How can I I sign up for that blessing and that benefit? The only way I can sign up for that blessing and benefit is the work of Christ. So again, what's being highlighted behind the scenes even though the emphasis in this passage is on sea and land as symbols, they're symbols of the result of the work of Christ, the saving work of Christ, the the new created creation work of Christ in creating the land out of the seas. We were all part of the sea is the point. The sea existed before the land, interestingly, in the biblical account. That's because all of us were unsaved. And then out of that, he caused the saved land people to appear. All right, let's go to another one. Uh, next couple of verses, actually, verses 11 and 12. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding Seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right. So God established a principle here, and this is true for all living creatures and it's true for even all vegetation. It's true of everything that has life, and it is true that vegetation has life. It doesn't have the same kind or quality of life that we do. It doesn't have the same kind and quality of life that the animal kingdom does, or the fish, or the birds, but even the plant uh, kingdom, so to speak, as we call it, is uh, a living kingdom, a living thing. It's not dead, and the idea here is how How God established all of that in the garden. How is it that we still have living things that surround us to this day? Because we have seeds. Because we have seeds. It's as simple as that. Seeds produce life. God has created all living things. This is true for human beings. This is true for all animals. This is true for all fish. This is true for all birds. It's true for all vegetation. It all works on the seed principle. All of it. So what does this have to do with the work of Christ? Well, first, one of the great images of the saving work of Christ, and we've emphasized this many many times maybe because we've chosen this name as the church name, the tree of life which was found in the garden is one of those seed-bearing trees, and it becomes throughout the story of redemption from this point forward throughout the end of all the way to the end of the Bible, even into the book of Revelation, even the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, the tree of life is present and emphasized and focused on. And it's a a wonderful image of the saving work of Christ because it is the true nature of what was taking place when he hung on the cross. His death was producing life by... The seed principle. What's the seed in the story of salvation? What, in the story of salvation, if we're looking at salvation as an image of like a, a tree or a plant in that, in that sense, what's the seed in the story of salvation? The seed is the gospel, the word of God. So we have a parable, for instance. Where Jesus said, you know, the the whole kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who went out and sowed seed. Some of the seed fell on this kind of land, and some of it fell on that kind of land, and some of it fell on that kind of land, and some of it produced some some effect for a short period of time. Some of it never produced any effect. Some of it produced eventually the the intended effect, and therefore that seed produced something like itself, which then has the capacity to produce more like itself. But the gospel itself is identified with a seed. Later in the book of James, later in Peter, both of them make reference to the seed principle being the implanting of the word of God in the heart of the unbeliever, which then produces life in that dead heart and brings about the, the result of what we call redemption or salvation. But it's a new creation work because the seed contains the life and without the seed in the heart, the heart which is dead without the seed would never experience life. So that living seed is planted in a dead heart and it produces life and enduring and then propagating life so that you're a saved person, but now you have the capacity, by God's grace, by sharing that seed, by by communicating that seed to other dark and dead hearts, you have the capacity to see life transformation in those that you pass that seed on to. Uh, There's a section, you're well familiar with it, so I'll just reference it rather than read it. There's a section in the Gospel of John that talks about this principle in a very significant way. It's John 15 verses 1-8, through where the Lord, uh, not so much a tree image, but a a vine imagery, uh, refers to himself as uh, I am the vine, my father is the the vineyard owner and keeper, but I'm the vine, and you are the branches of the vine, and it's through you that I'm producing the seed that is then uh, the accomplishment of the work that that vine is intended to produce. All right, that's that one. Let's go to another one now. In uh, back in Genesis one verse fourteen. Let's see if I can get through this list in the time we have left. I'm going to read verses fourteen through eighteen. And God said, "Let there be lights." Now, lights plural, individualized lights, not the same exact or identical light from back in verse three. These are now individualized lights. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And There's the separation principle again at work. Let them be for signs, signs meaning spiritual indicators of something greater than themselves. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. That's calendar, practical calendar purposes, organizing time. And let them... Be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day, I want you to focus on the word rule, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light in the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. All right, what are we dealing with here? Individualized lights. Um, I'm going to reference first from the teaching that David did sometime back in Genesis chapter 37, the life story of Joseph. Uh, One night, Joseph had a spiritual dream, and it changed his relationship to his family because he shared the dream and they did not comprehend it, but were meant to comprehend what they, I mean, they kind of got the point, but they didn't. I'll say it this way. They comprehended the the details of the dream, but they didn't like what it implied about his relationship to them. So we're in Genesis 37 and uh, we're reading from verse 9. This is Joseph. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right, so we know how the story ends. Eventually, the family did come and bow down to Joseph exactly as he had dreamed. But I'm focused not so much on the practicalities of their bowing, but on the significance of how the Lord communicated in this dream language, this spiritual dream language, how he communicated the concept of rule to Joseph in relationship to his family. He saw his father, and he saw his mother, and he saw his 11 brothers, but he didn't see them in human form. He saw them in heavenly body form, and I'm not talking about human bodies. He saw his father represented by the sun in the sky, his mother represented by the moon in the sky, and his 11 brothers represented by different points of light in the night sky, different stars. So what does this all have to do? What 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 his father, when he told him the dream, his father comprehended and understood. There's There's a spiritual meaning to what you've just told me. The spiritual meaning is, because he was well familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, the spiritual meaning was, you're conveying the concept of rulership shifting in the family. You know, Joseph, at the time that he said this, was the the second youngest brother in the family. It would be out of all proportion to normal family relationships for the other family members, the older brothers, the mother, and even the father to bow down and recognize the second youngest son has authority over all of us. That would never happen unless the Lord did something unusual, which is why he gave him this dream, to prepare his heart for what was going to happen in the future when he arrived in Egypt and eventually saved his family's life and all of the covenant people with them by preserving them through the famine. And his family comes and bows down to him. But they're symbolized by sun, moon, and stars. So the idea here is, how does this in any way portray the work of Christ? Well, first, Joseph himself, and we'll see this later when we get to types of people in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. Uh, Joseph himself is a type of Christ, but, but more so than that, sun, moon, and stars are an indicator in this case of how the Lord's work is going to unfold in the work of redemption. Let me share with you quickly two passages. Daniel chapter 12, This is the, the ending of the prophecies of Daniel. And this is a portion of the Lord revealing to Daniel what is going to happen in the future after the Messiah comes and how that will transform the experience of those who were saved by the Messiah. We'll read from Daniel 12... Verse 3. I'll read verse 2 and connect it to verse 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, these are the ones that are in the everlasting life category, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So in Genesis 1, the Lord made the sun, moon, and stars in order to represent specific concepts to us that will ultimately be revealed in the transforming and glorifying work of his purpose for us for all of eternity to come. And our present experience of that as shining as stars in the midst of a darkened place right now. So let's look at a New Testament passage that makes that exact point. Paul in in Philippians chapter two. The idea is we're stars. And I don't mean in a celebrity sense. I mean in a light, a heavenly light source sense. Not the greatest light. The greatest light is the Lord himself, of course. But we're we're certainly identified among the lesser lights in in the star category. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 15. I'll read uh, 14 and 15 together. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, In the midst, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So the idea is again the separation principle is at work here, but not physical separation. We're in the midst of the darkness. We're in the midst of the dark culture, the dark society, the fallen world that the Lord has planted us in, each in our own spot where the Lord intends us to be. And in the midst of that, we are called to shine. And the way we shine, as he practically describes it, connecting 14 to 15, is by our redeemed character. In other words, there has to be something that distinguishes us from the way the people in the world around us live, the way they act, the way they behave, their attitude, their, their words. There has to be something that distinguishes us. And what distinguishes us is our redeemed character. And because of our redeemed character and only because of that, not, not not because you know we're in the celebrity sense more famous than the unsaved people around us. We're not. We're if anything, we're less famous than the unsaved people around us. But what we are is we're able to we're able to draw a clear and definitive contrast and in our behavior point just as powerfully as our words of sharing the gospel do to how it is that we came to live such a different life than those who are right to our left and right to our right in front of us and behind us as they're watching and observing our life. All right, we're at the end of our time. I'm going to save the last two for next week, and then we have some additional material on uh, this creation category as well. And um, we'll stop here because, uh, because of our time tonight. All right. God bless you.